Mark Ripito is the Alex Jones of fitness. <laughs> From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas. From the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Thank you, Mark Wolf. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Starting Strength Radio is the title of our little podcast here. Why we call it Starting Strength Radio is, you know, I I don't remember why that was a good idea. Rusty, what was the, what did we decide the deal was on that? Because it's obviously not radio, it's video. It's a video, right? but it's, it's a, a podcast. It's a podcast, and most podcasts are audio only. Yeah. Right? But we're more interesting. Like if podcasts. you listen to, most people listen to Joe Rogan and don't watch him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that the deal? Because really, there's nothing to watch <laughs> there any more than there is here, right? You You're watch watching some guys around a table with headphones on, headphones. wearing headphones, talking to each other. Yeah. And the headphones are just fine if you're doing uh, an audio podcast because you can't hear the headphones. I don't like the way they look. They mar the beauty of my face and head. I think there's some comments about and, your, uh, your haircut. There might be. In comments, comments from, the, from haters. the haters. We always like to start with these. Bree gathers these from the internet every week for us to read. Where do you get all these damn things? From YouTube comments? Is that worth? From the bottom 3%. From the bottom 3%. YouTube. YouTube comments. All right. Quandorman, Quandorman says, Mark, it's not that you're fat or even that you can't run. <laughs> it's the fact that you look like you're covered in a shag carpet of hair. You damn Sasquatch. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, well, I, you know. Yeah, kind of. All right, and let's see. Uh, the depraved eunuch says, no, <laughs> epic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to be insulting. Mark Ripito is the Alex Jones of fitness. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one. That's uh, your, all right. Uh, Rip has some kind of allergy, always snuffling a little bit. <laughs> and then Mitch Shooter says, that may be what he has. I've wondered, is he on the Tourette's spectrum? And is it just a tick? His arm also has a tick. And he can really vocalize strongly. These are all symptoms of Tourette's, which varies in severity among individuals. You do walk around the gym just screaming fuck every now and then. So. Well, who doesn't do yeah, that? Right. Who doesn't do that? That's not Tourette's. That's just frustration. <laughs> right? Okay. Oh, this is a good one here. Uh, what? What's this guy's name? I can't really read this. Bree, make this bigger next time because I can't. Okay. It says garlic. Garlic's good. He says, I'm going to read this as it's typed. 
I'd fuck you all up, and I ain't had no training pussies. That was on Nick's episode, the fighting one. Yeah, the fighting episode. He's going to fuck us all up. Right. Dude, y'all can't even run around the block without almost passing out. You can't fight. Cardio is the most important thing after technique. You both have neither. Joe, go just do a good like 10 minutes sparring and film it. LOL. Let's see. Well, he thinks a fight lasts 10 minutes. Maybe between, and this is a guy named Jen or Sin or something like that. Maybe between he and his mother-in-law that he usually spars with, it does last 10 minutes. But That's interesting. And uh, let's see. That's probably enough of this shit. Uh, Ripito looks like he traded a homeless dude crack for a shit-ass haircut. Suck my clit, rip. Okay. So that you, you what, think, what was his name? What was his name? His name is uh Uncle Weenus. So he uh, That's Uncle Weenus. Uncle Weenus fully admitted that he had a clitoris. Uncle Weenus has a clitoris. Should be Aunt Weenus, right? <laughs> or is that is that sexist? Well or is that transphobic? Maybe he say? identifies. It transphobia. Yeah, it and I'm widely regarded as transphobic. Yeah. Uh Herder, Edge Lord, no wonder you're the laughing stock of the fitness industry. No professionalism whatsoever. Well, we're trying to be professional by, you know, giving everyone a voice here on the on the comments from the haters. And let's close with the always favorite. Why are Mark's nipples hard? <laughs> is he some kind of is he some kind of pervert? <laughs> I so, love that one. That don't good. ever, don't ever leave that out, Bree. You're just, you're doing such a fine job. Okay, now, this week is Q&A. You'll notice nobody here but me, so we're just going to talk to you. I'm going to read your questions. I'm going to try as seriously as I can to approach the answer to these questions in order to provide information that you obviously don't have now else you would not have asked the question, right? Let's begin. All right. Uh, and these are all stupid names, so I'm just going to leave them out because these are actually not terrible questions to ask. Uh, for online starting strength coaching, what would be the best camera setup to provide the coach with the optimum view to make suggestions? I'm sure a smartphone could be made to work, but maybe you've got a better idea. Who knows? It could happen. Well, I'm not your online coaching guy. I got one client I'm working with right now, but uh, it's it's difficult. I'll tell you, it's difficult. It's it's not as easy a thing as uh, as you might think it is. And uh, those people who are effective in online coaching have figured out how to do it. The problem is, a lot of people who think they are effective at online coaching are in fact not and are not making the form corrections that should be made because of the inherent problem with online coaching. And the inherent problem with online coaching is that you cannot cue. Cues are delivered in real time on the platform to affect the next rep. Cueing is an extremely important part of 
platform coaching. Um, the platform, the effective platform coach has got a huge amount of experience that comes from having done the coaching part and having done the lifting part, being under the bar so that uh, the coach knows what the lifter is experiencing under the bar and can take his observations of what is going on with the lifter under the bar, filter those observations through his own experience, provide a comment based on the evaluation of the form he has taught, and then provide communication to the lifter right now to fix that rep, to fix the next rep. That can't happen with online coaching, and this is one of the biggest problems with attempting to do online coaching. Now, online coaching may be the best uh, option you've got. It's not perfect by any means, but it may be the best option you've got, and some people are better at it than others. People who are better at it, though, are the people that have had extensive experience in actual coaching online. I, I, on the platform, I'm sorry. People who are better at it have had exper extensive experience in coaching on the platform and know that what they're seeing is not going to be immediately available to fix the next rep and can tailor their comments to try at least to work around the fact that they're not actually cueing the lifter. Okay. The camera angle is terribly important because that's going to be the, the source of the, the coach's observational uh, interaction with, with the lifters training that day. So in order to set up the camera angles best, um, I found it necessary to see the lifter from a, about a 30-degree posterior oblique angle. Uh, with the camera backed off far enough to mimic the view that the coach would have were he standing 30 degrees behind the lifter off to the side about five or six feet. Uh, the other camera angle would be that same degree of relief from 30 degrees anterior from the front. And these two should provide quite a bit of uh, exposure to the to the movement that the lifter is, is communicating with this videoed set of five. Now it's, it's obvious that, uh, we're not cueing the lifter when we see this thing and give feedback later. Okay. Uh, what I have done is had my client take a video, post it, and we're using Facebook Messenger, post the video, and then call me, and I'll discuss what what she has just done and what I'm looking at and give my impressions uh, for what I would cue were I there in person and figure out a different way to communicate that than I would be able to do were I commenting on her movement pattern under the bar in real time. And then I, I give these instructions and then I, because they're not cues, they're instructions. And then I go back, I have her go back to the bar, do the next set, video the set, send it to me and call me so that we're in relatively near time communication about this. But uh, 
Uh, it's not ideal. But if she's in Canada and I'm in Texas, it's the only way we can get this done. And, uh, you know, you'll you have to admit that, that uh, with sufficient interaction, you can get quite a bit accomplished. But it's not ideal. All right. But for someone that's not in a position to be coached in front of me, the correction I could make in 30 seconds, you know, might take 10, 15, 20 minutes, and it might take two weeks. Uh, if I can actually coach you on the platform, I could put my hands on you and put you in the position that you don't seem to understand that I'm explaining I want you to be in. And this saves a lot of time. It saves quite a bit of time. And uh, online coaching is not really uh, – what you'd call coaching, it's more of a form check. And if, if, the, if the online coach is going to make comments on what he sees in the video, he may have three or four times to, to review the whole video before he presents his, his conclusions. An actual coach has a rep to assess what he sees and compare it to the model and give communication based on what he thinks you need to do to get closer to the model. This happens in real time. Whereas online coaching does not necessarily have to happen in real time. And a shitty online coach might just have a, a you know, five or six pieces of instruction that they can cut and paste into a response. And this, you know, low quality online coaching gets down to that quite often. So, uh, you know, there, there are several problems with it. Uh, but again, it may be the only option you've got. So try it for yourself and see if it see if it works. If it helps you, keep paying for it. If it if it doesn't help you, then uh, get another online coach, or figure out a way to get in front of the coach on a semi regular basis. Right now, as far as the camera situation, I don't know that. Uh, a modern smartphone is not going to be your best option. I think it probably is your best option. Uh, everybody's got one, pretty much. And uh, they make tripods for the thing. That, you, you know, you can set it up at any angle. It's got audio. I don't know that there's any reason to have a better camera situation than, than you, will, you will run into with, your, with an average smartphone setup. Uh, I don't. I don't have a better idea for that. Yeah, the the thing I was trying to remember was bar path. All right, look, you you are going to be thirty degrees oblique behind and thirty degrees oblique forward. All right, and as I explained in my article about the master cue, you are not going to have a bar path that is vertical over the middle of the foot until the weight gets heavy. All right, it's, it's not possible to do that because of combined center of mass considerations that are explained in that article. What you do know is that when the weight gets heavy, the bar will be in balance over the middle of the foot in a squat, for example, whether you want it to be or not. So I don't think you need to see a direct profile parallel eyeballs to the bar to determine the bar path because it doesn't matter. An empty bar is not going to be vertical to the midfoot. A light warm-up is not going to be vertical to the midfoot. And in a novice lifter, even a work set 
is probably not going to be vertical to the midfoot and won't be until the lifter gets strong enough to have to get into that degree of balance. And that may be for a while. So that's I, I, I think those two angles, forward 30-degree oblique and backward 30-degree oblique, are enough to see what's going on in terms of our ability to determine bar path considerations and pretty much everything else. Now, the only other angle that might be useful would be a direct behind the lifter. And this would show us any knee and hip asymmetries that we need to see uh, that would have something to do with, with, with a, a curve in the back, in asymmetrical use of the knees, uh, would help diagnose a potential severe leg length discrepancy, these kinds of symmetry issues are visible straight from the back, directly behind the lifter. So we need to see that too. Need to see one of the work sets from that angle to make sure nothing's going wrong that we can't see from the side. Other than that, I think uh, I think we've adequately dealt with that question, don't you think? I think so. Don't you think so? All right, now. Free, do you think so? I think so. All right, now. Is volume the primary driver of hypertrophy? You know, boy, volume's sure popular these days. If volume was the primary driver of hypertrophy, all CrossFitters would have 33-inch thighs because of the hundreds of air squats they do, right? I don't think that you can, don't think that you can say that volume by itself is the primary driver of hypertrophy. And this kind of simplistic misreading of the literature is uh, is not useful and has sidelined quite a few people from making even decent progress with their training. If you want to do a bunch of light reps, you want to do eight sets of seven, go ahead and do eight sets of seven. I don't care. As long as you're paying your gym dues and having a good time in the gym, I don't really give a shit whether you're getting stronger or not. doesn't matter to me. You know, it's, it's not in my vested interest that you get stronger. You know, the only thing that's in my vested interest is to tell you the correct shit. And I think I've already done that. Uh, but I wanted to read you this uh, from Lyle McDonald. Now, Lyle and I have had our problems in the past, but... I have never said that Lyle didn't know what the fuck he was talking about because Lyle knows what the fuck he's talking about. And uh, his diet advice is some of the first stuff I'd read a long, long time ago. And Lyle is on the money. Lyle's a sharp guy. He's an obnoxious, mentally ill fucker. But, and I don't even think he'd disagree with that. I may hear from him and we'll see. But, but by the same token, Lyle is got his head out of his ass, and you need to pay attention to what he's telling you. And I'm going to read you something that he wrote about this very thing, and you pay attention to what I'm reading to you, okay? Uh, At the end of the day, no matter what else you do to generate further growth, you need to increase the tension overload requirements. Yes, there are other progression methods, but progressive tension overload in terms of increasing the load – is the primary one over the long term. This isn't even debatable, even if folks continue to debate it. 
And literally every study, no matter how they say they are studying, has progressive tension overload built into the protocol. The methods always describe that loads are being adjusted during the workout and throughout the study. It's an assumed part of the protocol because without it, nothing happens. And this means that what these studies are actually asking is, what happens if we compare these different frequencies or volumes when progressive overload is already present? Everything else being examined, everything else is a secondary factor of study, even if nobody but me seems to have noticed it. People continue to argue against the above, especially in the era of volume is the primary driver on growth bullshit. I'm told that one brain surgeon argued that adding weight to the bar is a negative because it reduces his volume. <laughs> and I will laugh and laugh, and in six months, when he has seen no progress and realizes that I was right all along. Already mentioned that every study showing effective growth outside of what it thinks it's studying frequency, volume, etc., is done on a base of progressive weight overload. It is fundamental to the training process. You can prove this all to yourself easily. Go to your gym and pick out a few regulars and note their current training poundages. Come back in a year. The guys who are lifting sufficiently heavier weights, heavier weights, will have grown. And the guys lifting the same weights have not grown, no matter how much volume or frequency they throw at it. They will be doing the same bullshit two-hour chest workout every Monday with the same weights and look exactly the same as the year before. Okay, that's not true. For some gym trainees, they'll get bigger if they don't add weight to the bar but focus on volume. But in this case, it's their volume of anabolic steroids. Trust me, double from 600 milligram a week to 1200 milligram a week, and you'll grow better than doubling your set count or adding weight to the bar. Drugs beat out all of this. Now, I'd have a little disagreement with Lyle on that, and I'll come back to it after this next paragraph. And I think that if you look at a lot of arguments that volume is the primary driver on growth, what you'll find it is that it's not the training driving the bus, but rather the special sports supplements being used. As I said in part one, a lot of goofy, stupid, inefficient, ineffective bullshit works pretty well when your dosage is high enough. And that's Lyle's take on the thing. Now, as I said, Lyle has his head out of his ass, especially with respect to this comment, because this is just what you learn having been in this business for as long as myself and Lyle have been in this business. Okay. Now, I would disagree with him on one minor detail. For a novice, for a novice doing our novice approach to the program, adding weight every single workout over all the exercises as fast as the load will go up without overfacing the trainee 
and who is eating enough food and getting enough rest and consuming enough protein and managing all the recovery aspects, that individual is going to grow faster on that kind of a program than a guy doing a shitty program taking a bunch of drugs. Because the novice effect is profound. It's extremely profound. The, the male human body, when loaded and fed, grows very, very quickly. When that same male human body is loaded inadequately or ineffectively but still provided with steroids, the growth does not happen at the same rate that it would for a novice who's doing training and eating correctly, as we've described many times. All right. Aside from that, that one little diversion, this is, you know, don't ignore him. Don't ignore me either, because we know what the hell we're talking about. Okay. Now, Owen says, I have no cartilage on the inside of my left knee. I've seen several doctors who've said I can get a partial knee replacement, but I should wait as long as possible. They indicate the replacement is not meant for a very active adult and that I should not squat or deadlift now or have uh, or after any type of knee replacement. Do you have experience working with people who've had knee hip replacements? Yes, we do. All of us have replacement, uh, hip replacement, knee replacement experience. Your doctor is wrong. Your doctor is for the surgery. Hire the guy that does the surgery best and leave subsequent activity to people who actually know what the hell they're talking about because your doctor doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. The fact that he knows how to repair the car does not mean that he's a race car driver. Okay? This is, this is, a, this is a, a, a common mistake that doctors make. They think that because they're doctors, they're entitled to an opinion about everything on earth that has anything even remotely related to do with what the hell they're talking about when they do the surgery. They don't know anything about this. I mean, we've got people that have deadlifted well over 500 uh, a year after a knee, a double knee replacement. I have a client who's in his late 60s, yep. and he's got two knee replacements. And he right. squats in um, up 190, low 200s. Yeah, well, look at, look at Phil Anderson. Phil Anderson. Phil Anderson. Anderson is not the smartest human being on earth. <laughs> and he pushed on his knee prostheses way too hard. Yeah. But he got a 600 deadlift yeah. 11 months after the surgery. Yeah. All right? Now, I'm not recommending that you do that. I'm just saying what's occurred. And your doctor doesn't know what's occurred. Yet, he assumes that he knows what's going to occur, and he doesn't. Okay, here's, but the reason I included this question in, in the Q&A today is because of the fact that I keep hearing people with, who are in a situation where they need a knee prosthesis or a hip prosthesis from the doctor that they want you to wait as long as possible before you have it done. Wait on what? For you to detrain to the point that your quality of life suffers because you're a weak pile of shit, because you've got a bad hip and you can't squat, you've got bad knees and you can't train. 
why do you not want people to train, Doc? You, you don't understand anything about this. You don't understand the benefits of training. You don't understand the benefits of having strong hip musculature around the hip, strong leg musculature around the knees. You don't understand how fast a guy can get back to strength levels after the surgery. You don't understand how fast an older woman, for example, can get strong after you remove the pain impediment that she is dealing with every day because she needs new knees or needs a hip. All right? And how important subsequent strength training is to her quality of life. You don't understand this. And as a result, you, in an attempt to cover your ass, recommend that people not train because that's what you're doing. When you recommend that people wait as long as they can to have this thing replaced, this bad joint replaced, that you have the ability to easily and quickly replace, inexpensively even, what you're recommending is that these people get weak. You're recommending that these people detrain and that they don't get strong and they don't train and they don't improve their daily life because you don't want you keep telling them you're gonna well you get this hip replaced it's gonna have to be replaced again in 15 years boys and girls 15 years of not training because of the subsequent operation the patient might have which completely ignores any advances in technology that might happen over the next 15 years that might make uh, a, a, a re-entry into that joint prosthesis a whole lot easier than it is right now. I, you don't know what's going to happen. But because you don't know what's going to happen and because you're, you think you're doing a responsible thing, recommended that these people sit in the chair for the next 15 years instead of train, uh, you're recommending the worst possible thing that you can recommend to them. If you need a hip, if you need a knee, go get the goddamn thing done. Don't listen to people. Find another surgeon that'll actually, you know, that actually wants to do this surgery. If you need to, if you need a knee and you can't train because your knees that screwed up, go get the knee so you can train. So you can get strong, so that you can enjoy the benefits of being strong and out of pain. Pain is bad. Chronic, bad, chronic joint pain is bad. Keeps you from sleeping. Uses you up. It uses a guy up. And, it, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I have to get all wound up about this kind of thing, but I hear this shit all the time. It's just cowardice. And a lack of information on the part of orthopedic surgeons that, that have a problem with this. Look, I understand that there's a slight risk uh, of not waking up from general anesthesia every time you, you go into the, into the OR. I understand that, all right? But I also understand that there is a gigantic risk of a person dying prematurely and more importantly, failing to enjoy the time they've got left. If you fix it up so that they can't get stronger than they are right now, strength is very important.
all right, as we've dealt with many times. Strength is the most important physical attribute, especially for somebody who's not very strong already. And, uh, and I think that you really need to, to think hard about this. I understand that you would be reluctant to recommend a knee replacement for a 28-year-old kid, you know. By the same token, there's no real mechanism for a 28-year-old kid to wear his knees out, and it's probably an acute problem. You probably know this, and you've probably done some knee replacements on injured knees. But I'd, I'd, I'd think what I'd ask you to do is go to that same thought process that, that was involved in deciding to go ahead and do a prosthetic knee on a 28-year-old kid. And the, the process was, well, he's 28. He needs his knees. He's a young guy. He needs to be able to move around. He can't enjoy his life. Why would you not apply that same calculus to a 60-year-old knee? You think 60-year-old people just need to sit down and shut up? You're 60. Strength is not for you. You need to learn how to play canasta, okay? Add another card game. Maybe get a box of dominoes, learn how to play dominoes, but just sit down. I mean, your active years are behind you, and you just need to figure out how to best enjoy your intellectual existence, right? That's, that's sickening. That's pathetic and sickening, and if you actually think that, get out of the medical profession, go kill yourself, do something, because you're not doing anything good for anybody. You really are not. Learn better than that, okay? Now, let's see. John Craig, Joe Craig, it says J-O-H-H. -H. Is that a typo? Mm -hmm. That's the way it was entered? Joe Craig. Juh. Craig. Joe Craig. Joe Craig. Joe. Why does it apparently never make sense to train non-human animals for strength? Well, I don't know that it never makes sense. Uh, I know, I know guys that uh, I, I have known guys that had uh, uh, dogs involved in pulling contests. Yeah. yeah, I was about to bring that up. Oh yeah, and they have weighted sleds for the dogs. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wouldn't say that it never makes sense to train non-human animals for strength. You know, uh, I don't know how draft horse guys train them, or if they just rely on the natural genetics of draft animals. I don't know. I would imagine that a a a, a draft horse team pulling a pulling a wagon could be trained progressively for resistance by loading heavier and heavier loads into the wagon. If they haven't done that, I don't know why it hadn't occurred to them. Should have occurred to them. But that doesn't necessarily make any sense as far as uh, animals. I mean, vertebrate physiology is, you know, vertebrate physiology. So I, I'm not going to assume that everybody is as stupid as, uh, you know, D, D1 and pro strength and conditioning coaches. <laughs> I would 
wouldn't say that about the draft horse trainer. No. But to continue, well, fella, those comments about Canada have got me and the boys mighty upset, don't y'all know? We're sorry you don't like our border people, but Canada was strong while Texas was still getting its rear end kicked by Mexico. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> Canada's been strong? Oh, what? No, Canada's just been real cold. The only reason Canada hasn't been occupied and, and annexed by, for example, us here in Texas is because so much of the country is a fucking Arctic wasteland and it just wouldn't pay to do that. John, Joe, Joe. All right. And by the way, do you realize Texas is way smaller than some of our provinces that are completely covered with ice and snow and <laughs> polar bears and mosquitoes and, and other, every other goddamn thing. We're a real country. You're just an afterthought of a state. Oh, it stings. <laughs> we have worse winters, eh? We have worse winters, eh? But we're not a hot desert for nine months either. Well, we're not either, Jeh. We're a hot desert for three months. Yeah. Can I correct you? This isn't Jeh. It's Canada Dry on Tap. Canada Dry on Tap. Oh, Jeh was the one. Oh, I see what you're saying. Canada Dry on Tap has asked this. All right, well, this is a printing error. So I'm, I'm yelling. I'm not... I'm not yelling at Juh. I'm yelling at Canada Dry on Tap here. I thought this was a continuation of Juh's. We apologize, uh, question. Juh. Juh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Canada Dry on Tap is the is is the guy here. Okay. It's a good name. Uh, it is a good name. They're a real country. We're just an afterthought <laughs> of the state, though. Uh, Canada is in programming. Canada is advanced, and Texas is still in novice progression. Eh? All right. Let me ask you a question. Oh, puts that in there. Let me ask you a question. Canada. Has anybody ever declared war on Canada? I think the answer is no to that. I think the answer is probably no to that. Maybe that indicates your level of importance. Now, I guess probably Canada participated with the United States in World War II as part of the Allies, right? So, yeah, oh, they did great. They've done fabulous, Mm -hmm. done fabulous work alongside us Mm -hmm. several times, alongside us. But, uh, but the problem here is that your border people, (laughs) you. You need to fire all of them and hire people with, you know, like manners and intelligence. If you can find any in Canada. (laughs) Okay, now, what's the worst injury you've had? What happened? How'd you rehab it? Well, that one is easy. I had a real bad motorcycle wreck in 1994. A bad motorcycle wreck. I was riding down the street woman turned left in front of me. That happens all the time to motorcycles. They don't see you. Hell, I had my headlight on. They don't see you because they're not looking. They're not looking. They're not looking down the street. They can look right at you. They can look right at you and not see you. And that's exactly what I think happened. 
But when I saw her, because I saw all this happen, I saw her, she was looking into the parking lot she was turning into, not down the road at me. And I was going about 40 down the road, and she turned in front of me. And I just had a few seconds to react to this, so I jerked the bike over to the left and managed to hit, did not T-bone the bitch right in the front passenger door. But I managed to, to clip the back of the car. So the, the bike went right down the bumper, and my leg stayed on the fender. And my knee, my right knee, was jerked back over here someplace. Bike goes down. I go skittering down the pavement. It was, a, you know, it was a potentially bad, bad deal. And uh, it was a bad deal. It destroyed my knee, completely ruptured my uh, ACL, uh, MCL, retinaculum. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was kind of a mess and, uh, cut me up, fucked up my hands, you know, uh, I got up on top of the bike, somehow managed to get up on top of the bike as it's sliding down the, the street and, uh, you know, crippled me up pretty good. Had to have, uh, the knee reconstructed. And uh, you you have no idea how bad that hurt. Not the wreck itself. I didn't feel anything till hours later. You know, a, a ruptured tendon, ruptured ligaments, that kind of stuff, don't have any pain receptors in them. And until the whole area gets swollen and inflamed, it doesn't really hurt. But two hours later, I was in pretty bad pain. Pain that I was in at that, after that wreck was a result of the surgery. They did a patellar tendon graft on me and they harvested the middle one third of my patellar tendon and used that to replace the ACL. So there's a whole bunch of drilling around on your patella and a whole bunch of drilling around on distal femur, proximal tibia drilling holes and you can look up this patellar tendon graft thing and see how it's done and what the the uh, procedure is very very invasive and uh, I had I have never experienced pain like I experienced in the hospital one of the problems that I have with with major injuries like this is I'm one of these people that does not respond with analgesia to opiate analgesics. You can give me hydrocodone all day long and all it does is keep me from coughing. It doesn't do anything in terms of analgesia. From what I understand, about 10% of the population is in this boat and apparently the, 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 the drug is metabolized before it reaches receptor site, something to that effect, and it doesn't work at all. In fact, I'll tell you that after that, after that wreck, I had a doctor in the uh, gym that was that was watching me hobble around in there, and asked me about my pain levels. And I said, I you know I look, I hadn't been asleep in two weeks. And 
he said, what are they, what did the doctor give you? I said, he gave me nothing. He gave me Tylenol. He wanted me to take Tylenol and ibuprofen. And he said, well, you know, not, there's, there are other things that we can give you for that. And he wrote me a, a prescription for some Percodan. So I thought, well, you know, I've heard Percodan's pretty strong. You know, it worked pretty good. So I went home and took some Percodan that night, and it didn't do a damn thing. Took two of them, didn't do anything, if I remember correctly. Laid awake, reading all night, because, you know, it's just that kind of pain. You can't relax and go to sleep. So I brought the things back in the next day, and, uh, uh, fact I, he wasn't there the next day so i i had two days that i tried this percodan so I, next night i took three percodan and drank about a half bottle of wine and this is supposed to kill you you know and nothing happened i read all night just laid awake reading uh next day i showed back up and i i brought the the bottle in he said did they i said did they fill this right and he looked at it and he said yeah that's percodan I said, well, this is what I did. And I described the, you know, previous night and the last night. He said, well, that's, that's interesting. They make stronger stuff, you know. And he wrote me a prescription for six count of Dilaudid. Now, Dilaudid at the time was $75 a piece on the street. And it's regarded as a drug of abuse. So it was a triplicate prescription form. I had to, I had to take down to one pharmacy in town that stocked it. I took it over to the pharmacy, and they checked my ID and made a phone call or something and filled a prescription for six count of Dilaudid. So I thought, man, I'm going to actually get to sleep tonight. So I went home, and I I took a Dilaudid, and I waited for 30 minutes, and nothing happened. And I took another Dilaudid, and nothing happened. So I took... A third dilaudid, this is all within about an hour and 15 minutes, I took a third dilaudid and poured a great big iced tea glass full of wine and laid there and read the whole night. Not only was I not out of pain, I wasn't even sleepy. It had absolutely no effect on me. And... Uh, you know, you can choose to believe this or not, but I'm telling you, I had to had what was supposed to be a fatal dose of dilaudid and alcohol. It didn't do a damn thing to me. So the question is, what happens if I get burned up in a fire? What are they going to do to get me out of pain? Nothing. They put me to sleep, I guess. I don't know what else they do. But uh, so I'm in kind of a shitty situation as far as this is concerned. I was laying up there in the hospital uh, after this surgery, I remember being in, it, it was, I was in the room and it was two days, uh, after the surgery, I was in the hospital a total of four days for some reason. They wouldn't do that now, but this is 94. So I was in there for, this is on the, probably the second night. My parents had come up to see me and I was laying there in the bed and my mother and dad are at the end of the bed and the pain was so bad. I remember that I was I guess in what you'd have to describe as a convulsion. I was shaking uncontrollably. My teeth were clenched together and I couldn't talk. Sounds like a seizure. Might have been a little baby seizure. I don't know. I don't remember any psychological 
effects, but it was it was real bad. And uh, so uh, finally, a nurse came in and said, "Oh shit!" and went down to the station, got a CC of Toradol, which is actually an inset, an injectable inset, and ran back down the hall and rolled me over and put this CC of Toradol in my ass. And about 30 seconds later, everything was much better. It's amazing how fast that stuff works. And it's not an, it's not an opiate. But it's got some weird-ass mechanism of action. They put it in IM, and it works immediately. And I came out of the convulsion. I didn't feel perfect, but I, it was like night and day. So the, the upshot of that story is it was a real bad it was it was real bad pain. It was real bad pain. It was a horrible surgery. It's a bad wreck. And I mean, people have had a lot worse wrecks than that. I understand that. I understand people have had arms and legs broken in multiple places. And thank God, I've never had anything like that happen to me. But this was that was just a level of pain. I've mentioned this because when somebody comes in the gym and says, "Man, I'm in a lot of pain. You know, my knee hurts real bad," and I noticed that their heart rate is normal and that they're able to talk and everything. They said, would you rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? And I said, oh, 7 or 8 anyway. Just in a perfectly calm, clear voice, 7 or 8. It's just like RPE. <laughs> <laughs> the pain scale is complete bullshit, too. Okay, now that was the worst injury thing. Okay, next, this is always good. Uh, Benjamin Cook asks, has Mark Ripito considered doing the Joe Rogan podcast? Oh, look, guys, I get so tired of hearing this. Look, Joe calls me every week. He calls me every week, and I've been turning him down because I don't want to go to California I don't like California. He does all of his podcasts in California. You got to go out there. You got to put these headphones on, you know, and sit across the table and talk to these guys. And I, you know, I look, I've invited him out here. He said, no, Rip, I want you to come to, I want you to come. To, I really, really want you to come to California. And no, Joe, uh, call me next week and we'll talk about it some more. Let me think about it some more. Okay, I'll, I'll call you next week. And he calls me following week. And I just, you know, this has been going on now for, what, a couple of years? How many times have you taken a call from Joe? I'm, I'm tired of talking I'm to tired. Him. You're tired of talking to him, too. I'm We're all tired of it. Yeah. You know? So, I don't know. I, you think I ought to do it? If I mean, I don't, I don't see the point. If it'll shut you, him up. If it'll shut him up. Yeah. If it'll get him to understand that if you add five pounds to your squat, you'd be better on the mat. But I don't know that it will. I think so. you should play hard to get. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I've been I've been playing hard to get, but I hadn't been playing it that way. I'm not playing hard to get. I don't want to do the show. Okay? Now, if I wanted to do the show, all right, and I kept telling him no, then I'd be playing hard to get. But I honestly, Bree, I don't want to talk to the guy on, t- on, on, the, on the podcast. Look, I understand that Joe Rogan gets more views than any network television show on his weekly podcast. I understand all this. He's super entertaining. He's super entertaining. Everybody loves him. And an idiot would turn Joe down, but I guess I'm an idiot. 
I guess I'm an idiot. I just I don't want to do it. Watched them. I don't want to do it. You haven't watched Joe? You're missing out. What? Well, there she's, you go. She's kidding. There you go, Rip. You got to uh, get on it just so she'll watch. Just so she'll show. watch. I don't know. Let's talk about it later. All right. We'll call He'll, him up. He's due to call. And, oh, he called while we were, while we were talking. Well, there you go. I missed his call. I got the ringer off. <laughs> missed him again. All right. Well, we'll see. But I don't know. I just, I just Joe Rogan. No, I, just, I don't think so. Men really don't. Okay. Now. All right, here's one uh, that I checked for some reason. Nick, I think Nick is posting this from the YouTube comments because apparently uh, the actual YouTube comment was illegible trash or something like that. What where Nick is from the YouTube comments, highlighted comment, Scott Rogers, 46 minutes ago, edited. What does all that mean? Do you have any idea what the hell he's talking about here? No. All right, well, I'll just read this. I watched all of these SS back talks out of personal interest. I think he's referring to our discussions about back pain. All right, out of personal interest due to my own back pain, all of them, including with credentialed guests, are saying, strengthening the muscles of the back makes pain go away. Not one of them addresses an equally important question. Can loading the spine and the inevitable micro breakdowns of form we all have in the gym accelerate structural degradation, degeneration in bone and cartilage and nuclei? Logically, it seems yes. Haven't heard anything otherwise, and logic of physics compels a conclusion. Yes, maybe strength training generates medium-term alleviation. Maybe... Medium term, medium term alleviation through soft tissue fortification, but long term, potentially worse off as hard tissue grinds away under massive force. This glaring hole is demotivating to continue. So, and this is a decent question, you know. I mean, at first glance, it does seem as though deadlifts would fuck your back up over time. Okay, let me let me start with saying that we have never said that strengthening the muscles of the back makes pain go away in every instance. Sometimes it does not. If you have degenerative changes in your lumbar spine that are sufficient enough to cause a bunch of pain, what we have said is if you've got chronic back pain and you haven't tried strength training, that usually squats and deadlifts will make the back pain go away, usually. Not every single time. If you're 65 and your back's been hurting you for 35 years, uh, I would not expect your back pain to be completely eliminated by squats and deadlifts. What I would expect to happen is that it's, it is significantly reduced. In some cases, in, in most cases actually, if you're experiencing low-level chronic back pain, when you start training the squat and the deadlift, it goes away in two or three weeks. It actually does go away in two or three weeks, but that's not always the case. It's not always the case that this, this completely eliminates back pain. The, the equation actually is this. Do you want to have 
back pain and a weak back, or do you want to have back pain and a strong back? You want a strong back because a strong back is less likely to hurt and less likely to be more further injured than a weak back. So that's, that's actually the equation. It's been our experience that the majority of the time back pain does in fact go away when you start to train, but it doesn't happen every single time. There's no guarantee that it's going to, okay? But the other question here is interesting. Uh, not one of them addresses an equally important question. Can loading the spine and inevitable micro breakdowns of form we all have in the gym accelerate accelerate the structural degeneration in bone and cartilage. Uh, this is not an engineering problem. Okay, we're dealing with a physiologic system that adapts to stress. Adaptation to stress is the primary reason we do this kind of training. We apply a stress to the system the physiology of the system causes an adaptation to the stress, and then we apply a little bit more stress, and an increased adaptation occurs. And by using this process over and over and over, we accumulate an adaptation that produces better fitness for the organism, better strength, better ability to adapt to the organism's environment. In this case, it's you get stronger. Okay. Micro trauma, micro breakdowns of form produces trauma in, in the back. Trauma is probably not the right word. It produces a structural strain within the, within the back. And that, that stress that produces the strain, uh, response to that occurs and an adaptation occurs to it. Your back gets stronger. The muscles get stronger. The ligaments get thicker. The bones get denser. The cartilage gets thicker and stronger and more resonant. And this process happens fairly quickly, and this is why most people get rid of their low-level back pain in two or three weeks. It doesn't take very long for this to take place. Uh, now, if you have had a whole bunch of motorcycle wrecks, or even one bad motorcycle wreck. You've been bucked off a bunch of horses. You've done a bunch of other stupid shit that is hard on a person's back. That doesn't have anything to do with your training. I'll be the first one to admit that my back hurts most of the time these days. Didn't used to do that, but as I've gotten older, my back hurts most of the time. My famous leaning on things is Largely the result of my involuntary desire to take some weight off my back and and because it hurts all the time. I'm not going to blame my training, although I've done a lot of stupid, wrong things in my training, a lot of which have resulted in me learning how to do things correctly and, have, and in telling you the things that you need to know to not do what I've done and fuck your back up and everything. My knees are certainly not in the best shape either. Because I squatted wrong for years and years, and as a result of that, when I tell you how to squat the new way, do it like that so your knees don't hurt all the time. All right? 
but I've I've been beat up real bad a bunch, and my back hurts and my knees hurt, and uh, you know there reaches a level of of abuse that you can't recover from. All right, so if you find that you can't tolerate the pain of training, that you can't tolerate the soreness that's the result of the aftermath of, of a workout, and you can't tolerate that, then quit, right? If you'd rather be weak, I understand. If, you're, if your pain tolerance is such that you can't deal with the pain of training, the pain of soreness, and, and the pain of, of aging, then it may make sense to you, although it doesn't to me, to take the pain of training and the pain of soreness away so that all that is left is the general background pain that you're already experiencing. But I want to tell you, that's not the smartest thing for you to do. The smartest thing for you to do is get stronger. It'll be better if you're stronger. Even if it doesn't completely eliminate your pain, being stronger is better. And those of you that have gone through this process and are now stronger, even though you're still in pain, know exactly what I'm talking about. All right? Now, what are the comments from the haters going to say? Bree, you'll be ready to obtain these for us. I'm ready. And next time we do a Q&A, we'll read all of what you're typing right now. <laughs> Rip's a broken down old fuck. He's telling everybody he's a deadlifted squat. He's crippled. He can't run. He doesn't care about RPE. He doesn't care about RPE. <laughs> Just, is the, oh, that's the height of the height of uh, the of uh, that's the height of callousness mm-hmm. to not care about lack RPE. Of it's a lack of empathy. Empathy. A lack of empathy. Right. That's what it. That's what it is. Look, if, if if you don't want to train, don't train. All right? This is demotivating. If it demotivates you to, to just consider the possibility that you're tearing your back up with deadlifts and you don't have any experience doing it, so you really don't understand that's not what's going on here at all, then quit training. This isn't for everybody. Not everybody needs to train. Not everybody needs to succeed. Not everybody ought to have a beautiful wife. Not everybody earns a lot of money. Not everybody does well. Some people are pieces of shit. They just are. They can't help themselves. Some people are liars and cheats and scoundrels and thieves. And and some people are, are just not meant to reap the benefits of training. And if that's you, don't train. Don't train. And don't watch me. All right? Now... Scott Beal asks us, our friend from Denver, did you ever find the guy that killed your dog? No, Scott, I didn't. This happened six or seven years ago. My little girl dog, Ursa, got shot. And her little buddy, Alfred, who was with her at the time, got shot too. He survived. He just got shot through the skin of the withers. But little Ursa never came home. And, uh, no, I hadn't found who did that. And you better hope I don't. I'm not a Christian. 
and I don't forgive. Dan M. says, We understand sprinting and standing vertical jump capabilities are largely genetic. That's true, they are. My question is, if starting to shrink can do anything to improve sprint times, sprint times and SVJ, standing vertical jump. Yes, it can. Now, just because the genetic capacity for explosiveness is, is kind of not terribly mutable, doesn't mean it's completely mutable, and certainly sprint times are, in fact, uh, mutable. Let's, let's get the standing vertical jump over with, all right? First, our, our friends out at Sacramento State, Nestland, and Distasio have coached this program at the college level for quite some time, and they're reporting quite a bit better results with standing vertical jump changes over three or four years than anybody else we've heard. They're talking about 20, maybe 22, 23, 24% increases in standing vertical jump. And this is a result of an exceptionally effective strength and conditioning program based on squats, deadlifts, presses, bench presses, cleans, snatches, this sort of thing. Correctly applied strength and conditioning program to college-age males. These, are guys, these guys are getting real good results out there. All right? And according to them, the, the, the majority of that improvement is due to the fact that their, their squats and deadlifts have made their hips and legs stronger. Uh, they are the exception. Most strength and conditioning programs are, are not capable of producing uh, extremely amazing, significant changes in standing vertical jump. Because standing vertical jump, as we've discussed many times, is a, a window into the genetic capacity for motor unit recruitment in a very short period of time. This is explosion defined. And it, this, there is a genetic difference between a guy with an 18-inch vertical jump and a 36-inch vertical jump. And never the two shall meet. You cannot train a guy with an 18-inch vertical to a 36. You can't even train a guy with an 18-inch vertical to a 22-inch vertical. It doesn't occur anywhere except on the Internet. Okay. That having been said, any improvements in standing vertical jump are probably attributable primarily to a strength increase. Uh, they're not really attributable to practice because the standing vertical jump is such a good test because you can't game the damn thing. You can't learn how to do a standing vertical jump. There's no technique to it. You know, beyond the first eight or ten reps of of practice jumps, you're going to learn what you need to do about how to perform a standing vertical jump within 10 minutes of messing around with it. Okay, so if the SVJ goes up, then you probably got stronger. All right, sprint times are a different thing entirely. It is, it is a common thing among younger kids who've not been training at all, 14-year-old boys, Completely untrained 14-year-old boys. We time these kids in a 40-yard dash, all right? And then we train them on the, on the squat and the deadlift for three weeks. 
and we take them out on, back out on the track, and we time them again, and they've dropped a second, a whole second, second and a half off their 40. Now, this is an important phenomenon that, that you need to understand, okay? I think that this thing is almost entirely attributable to low back strength. It's not attributable to sprint mechanics instruction because I don't know how to do that, and I haven't bothered with it because of the effectiveness of a strength improvement on reducing a sprint time. Uh, if you look at the low back and you look at the normal lordotic arch in the low back and you look at the musculature of the low back and the abs and all the muscles of the hip girdle, that support the lordotic arch. You'll remember, you, you'll, you'll understand then that, that as you sprint down the track, as you sprint down the track, you'll understand that each stride that results in a hip extension is what pulls you down the track. A series of hip extensions, unilateral hip extensions, hard as you can go, as much force as you can push the track with to propel your body's mass down the track. And if you'll look at the low back's role in this, you'll understand why this is. It's not terribly difficult to see that if your low back muscles, your spinal erectors, get hard and strong, then more of the force with which you are performing the hip extension gets channeled into propelling your body's mass down the track and less of it gets eaten up in lumbar flexion. If your lumbar flexes and relaxes every stride, how much of the hip extension gets eaten up by that. You can see the anatomy situation there. And if it gets eaten up in that, then you take maybe 10, 15 degrees of effective force transmission out of the hip extension with every stride. Whereas if you get your deadlift strong, and I'm not talking about, you know, a 700 deadlift. I'm talking about an untrained kid going from not deadlifting anything to 135. You know, something we can do in three weeks then you see that that one little minor improvement in, in mechanical strength for the sprint is responsible for a huge amount of efficiency improvement in sprints. Okay, now high-level sprinters know this. They all are very strong, one way or another. They're very strong. And if you want to make a sprint time go down, Spend some time training your low back. Spend some time squatting and deadlifting, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. This works every time it's tried. Give it a shot. Now, here's, here's probably the last one we have time for. You guys are I'm trying your patience, I know. But uh, let's see this last question here. Hi, Rip. What's your advice for dealing with muscle cramps? I've been prone to cramping my whole life, and I never could figure out if it was an issue with hydration, nutrition, fatigue, or something else. When I was younger, I played a lot of soccer, did a lot of running, usually get cramps in my hamstrings and calves the next day. 
Now I'm in my mid-30s. I mostly lift weights and hardly run. I still get cramps in my hamstrings, and now I also get cramps in my abs, which is particularly painful, sometimes in my lats. Any advice? Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, early part of my lifting career, when I was in my 20s, I was mowing yards in Texas in the summer and still training. And I learned quickly how to deal with cramps. And this is what I have found about cramps. Cramps are a combination of the effects of dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. So, hydration is easy. Drink a lot of fluid, all right? Uh, water's fine. Iced tea's fine. Hell, Diet Cokes or water, you know. I've, <laughs> I remember hearing a long time ago, you wouldn't wash your car with a Coke. You wouldn't wash your car with a Diet Coke, so why would you think that they would be good for hydration? I don't know how you explain the function of the stomach to somebody like that. Just, you know, it's fluid, right? Now, bourbon's probably not a good way to hydrate. <laughs> All right? But, uh, you know, I mean, beer hydrates you. You know, now if you get too high a gravity of beer... You're going to have side effects from that hydration that may not contribute to athletic performance, but at least acutely. But, uh, you know, hydration is important, yes. Uh, it, it's interesting that the rise of the bottled water industry has coincided with people thinking they need to drink a sip of water every five minutes. Frequent sips of water. <laughs> oh, I'd love it when I say it like that. Frequent sips of water. Uh, just look, just get a big glass of water and drink the goddamn thing. And then next time you're thirsty, get another big glass of water and drink the goddamn thing. People come to our seminar with a gallon of water they keep on the table. It's so weird. So we're just in every five minutes. I don't understand. I don't understand how they think or they haven't thought, but how the human thirst response is somehow suddenly inadequate in 2019 to, to provide you with information that you need about hydration, all right? It is. It's just fine. Just drink a bunch of water. I drank, what, four times a day? Not thirsty right now. You notice how... I've Stayed out of this coffee because I'm not thirsty and I forget about it. But you people would have a bottle of water here and go, you know, continually interrupting the podcast with drinking a bottle of water. Don't do that. That's stupid. Just drink when you're thirsty. Drink a whole bunch, get unthirsty, and quit wasting time all through the day hydrating. All right. That having been said, hydration is important in terms of cramps. The other thing's important is electrolytes and this is what i have found works best get a bottle of potassium tablets they're at the store they're 99 milligrams a piece they're cheap and if hydration or cramping is a problem take a big handful of those things during the course of the day every day take eight or ten of the things now this is look the mdr minimum daily requirement 
or whatever they call it, RDA now for potassium is about 3,500 milligrams a day. You take 10 of those, it's less than 25% of your daily potassium intake. And if you're cramping, it may be that electrolyte. The other electrolytes are solved by taking a multiple mineral. Now, there are multiple minerals built around the 1,000 milligram calcium, 500 milligram magnesium structure, twice as much calcium as magnesium, and then a bunch of trace minerals in that. Take, get a bottle of those. I buy them on Amazon. Take, uh, if you're cramping, take four of those for a couple of days and a handful of potassium and make sure your water levels, your thirst is being addressed. In addition to the multiple minerals, if you make sure your thirst is being addressed and you're taking the, you know, the potassium, I, I don't think you're going to have a problem with cramps because uh, if you're having cramps, if you do what I'm telling you to do, they'll go away by tomorrow. If that doesn't fix them, I don't know, all right, because that usually every time I've had any problem with cramps, that's how I fixed it. It worked immediately. Everybody I've told to do this has had their cramps go away immediately, so that's my advice. Handful of potassium tablets, three or four multiple minerals for a couple of days in a row, and then two a day from then on, make sure you're hydrated, and that should take care of your cramps. Give it a try and let me know. So I think we probably need to shut up and go away. Thanks for joining us on Starting Strength Radio. We will see you next time.